Beloved, if you would please turn in God's holy word to Colossians chapter 4, Colossians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 6, the church's call of duty, the church's call of duty, persevering prayer and winsome witness, persevering prayer and winsome witness. We're coming to a closure here in the book of Colossians, but before we proceed and before I read the text, I wanted to step back, as it were, to remind us once again, not only of the the individual trees that we've been looking at, but the forest, if you will, if you will follow me in that metaphor. So often, sometimes we can get so uh, encaptured, so myopic regarding the various trees and miss the forest. But as you remember, Paul has been stressing the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the firstborn of creation, the one who is preeminent in all things in the creation, the one who is the heir, the one who is the son, the owner, the maker. Through him all things were made. And not only in the first creation, he's preeminent in the second creation, that new creation that he's brought, that he's the the firstborn, the first fruits of the new creation. That in Jesus Christ, all things might be put together and hold together. He is preeminent. In chapter 2, Paul exhorted us and exhorted the Colossians that as they receive the Lord Jesus as Lord, as Master, as King, so we are to walk in Him. We are to conduct our lives as those who have a Master. So we're not following don't tread on me, Mafia. We're We're following Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is the one who's called us to serve and to give our lives for the kingdom and for the welfare of others. We also saw that false teachers were threatening the assurance of faith of this young congregation, questioning the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of the Word of God. I don't think there's a more important doctrine for the church to grapple with and come to terms with today, and I mean this with every fiber of my being, than the sufficiency of of the Word of God. All that we need, all, panta, all in Greek, all that we need for life and godliness is found in the Word of God. It doesn't need supplementation. It doesn't need all type of sophistry to surround it and coat it up and sugar it up. We just need to be faithful in reading it, in teaching it, and in preaching the Word of God of the living God. Paul exhorts them there in Colossians not to be taken away by human philosophies and empty deceit. You see, these things have an appearance to the flesh of wisdom because they work sometimes. Practically speaking, we can see the concrete results of the philosophies of men. But Paul says, They have no power in the kingdom of God. They they have no power in subduing the flesh, in subduing the Adamic nature, that, that sinful nature. They have no power. And he reminded us that we have been crucified with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We're to keep our minds on things above where our life is now hidden enveloped, if you will. Think of it a big vanilla envelope, like Christ is an envelope, and your life is in that envelope, right? 
You're in Jesus Christ. Your mind is focused on Jesus Christ. So you can be of some earthly good. You can be salt. You can be light. You can be the city on the hill. You can be the citizens of heaven that God calls you to be in this present evil age because your mind is focused above. And then we spent some time looking at Paul's instructions for the Christian home, the the various roles as Christians. What is a Christian father, husband, wife, child? What, What does it look like? What does it mean? What's some tread on those tires, so to speak, right? Help me understand, and Paul did that. And last week, we looked at our various vocations and callings as employers and employees. Well, today, Paul shifts from our relationships within the church to remind us, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as God's new humanity located in Jesus, hidden in Jesus, in union with Jesus, that we are God's embassy to the unbelieving world. You know, oftentimes we think we're so insular, right? It's just us. We're circling the wagons. We feel like targets, right? And that's correct. And that's true. We're going to be Jesus Christ himself. But before he was a target, he was a missionary, Jesus Christ. And he's called the church to be missionaries, to be ambassadors of the kingdom to the unbelieving world. So he first calls us to pray. And that's exactly where he started in chapter 1. And beloved, prayer is where we must begin before we start to think about witness. Because if we have not spoken to God about unbelievers, dare we speak to unbelievers about God? You see, God raises the dead. I can't raise the dead. Your ruling elders can't raise the dead. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can take the leopard spots and wash them away. Only God can take your sin that it's that scarlet and make it whiter than snow. Only God can change the very nature of a hell-bound sinner who loves sin, who hates God, who loves their autonomy. And give them a heart of flesh and write the law of God on that heart that pants and thirsts after the courts of heaven. Only God can do that. Hence, our need to do what? Seek the face of God. We must be a people who seek the face of God. Because before we can speak to unbelievers, we must first speak to God. Now, Paul's aim here is not to guilt trip us into praying and witnessing, but rather to remind them and Colossae and to remind us of of the great privilege, that's right, the great opportunity we have to be ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. Well, you're saying, Pastor, I'm not called to gospel ministry. That's right, you're not. I am. God's appointed me. He's commissioned me. He's given me the burden. He's called me to the office. But what's interesting here is that Paul, while recognizing all that and that reality, he exhorts the church in the plural, meaning he's calling everyone to be prayerful, purposely prayerful, persevering in prayer, 
and everyone to put on the garments of a winsome witness. It's y'all do this. It's not just the elders and the deacons there at Colossae, but y'all. All y'all get busy praying. All y'all get busy being clothed with a winsome witness. You see, some plant and some water, some will reap, but it is God and God alone He gives the increase. So let's look at this text under these two simple headings. Persevering prayer and winsome witness. Persevering prayer and winsome witness. Let's read the text together. Continue or attend assiduously, be devoted steadfastly in prayer, being watchful, that is, on alert, awake in it with thanksgiving, with gratitude. At the same time where you're being steadfastly in prayer, pray also for us, the us there is in the plural, that is for Timothy and Paul and Epaphras, that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on the count of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear to render apparent, to make manifest which is how I ought to speak. Verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, that is, being opportunistic. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his eternal blessing. Let me pray for us. Father, we can do nothing Only you can give the increase. You who raised the dead, come in this hour and do so for your glory and the glory of the Lamb, that the Lamb would receive the reward of his sufferings, all to the glory of the triune God. We pray in his holy name. Amen. So first, persevering prayer. Persevering prayer. Paul begins in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. The verb to continue or to devote oneself to prayer is often used in the Greek New Testament in the context of praying. We saw this everywhere in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, before the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, the Lord Jesus tells them to wait for power from on high to clothe them, that they might be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They're to wait. And what they're doing while they're waiting, they're praying. They're devoted continuously to prayer. And then in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 42, after Pentecost, we read of the early church continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to what? Prayer. There it is again. Acts chapter 6, right? There's this little disagreement in the church. The Hebraic widows and the Hellenistic widows, the apostles are having to devote time to minister and to wait tables, and they say, guys, this is not right. God has called us to be ministers, to proclaim the Word of God, and to devote ourselves to prayer, right? Remember Paul's own example here in Colossae in chapter 1, verse 3. Colossae, we're praying always for you. 
Chapter 1, verse 9, he adds, For this reason also, since we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you. We're unceasing in the way we pray for you. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul refers to his prayers for the Colossians as a great struggle, as a wrestling match. Do you think of prayers in this way? Chapter 4, verse 12, Paul mentions Epaphras, that he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may be mature, fully assured in all the will of God. You see, the bottom line for us is to pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, over and over, to keep on praying, to have a posture of prayer, an attitude of prayer. It's almost like you're grabbing heaven and you're pulling it down. You're, you're taking the very promises of God and who he says he is and who he says he'll be for you and for his church and for his glory and for his missions, and you're pulling them down. You say, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me, God. And you begin to wrestle with God because he's real. It's not just an idea. It's not just a sophistry and some concept in the nebula. He's the living God. He longs for you to seek his face. I just read Catherine this week, yesterday I think it was, Psalm 81.10. God calls us to open our mouth that he might fill it. What a beautiful picture. He longs for communion with his people. He longs for us to be steadfast in prayer. You see, prayer is one of the hardest things the Christian does. Your flesh and the devil wants nothing more than to prevent you from praying. Right? Because when you pray, there, there is no more crystallization of faith, saving faith, than prayer, is there not? Right? I don't care how articulate you are. I don't care if you memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Larger Catechism, the whole confession itself, three forms of unity in the original languages, right? And you know them backwards and forwards. Do you pray? That's where it gets real. Because what is faith? What does faith do? Faith says, I, I, I'm looking to another. And what is prayer? Prayer is an expression. I am helpless in this situation. I need God. I need God. I need God to intervene. I need God to be my God. I need to pray. You see, the Bible's clear. God is a rewarder of those who persist, who, who keep on asking, knocking, and seeking, right? He, he gives us these parables. He, he draws us these stories. The persistent widow who, who keeps coming before the unjust judge, and she's relentless. She's a bulldog in the prayer closet because she wants justice. But this unjust judge, he, he doesn't care about her. He's a narcissist. He sits on his, in his seat and rules for his own glory. And yet, because she continues to hound him, because she continues to knock, because she continues to seek that she might find, he finally relents and gives her what she asks. Oh, beloved, how much more will your heavenly Father give to those who ask? Isn't it amazing we don't pray more than we do? I, I find it quite enigmatic. 
that we are not more prayerful in the way we do life this side of heaven. Think about the context here, right? There are false teachers in the church. Can you imagine we had any false teachers in the church who had positions of leadership? Right? One of our ruling elders was off the reservation denying some, uh, a doctrine that's, that's foundational, the marrow of what we believe. That's what they were doing in Colossae. He's just given the roles for the Christian home, for marriage, for family, for work. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You think you need prayer, man? Do you, men? Yeah, you do. Wives, to submit to that imperfect man, to follow his leading. You need grace? Yeah, you need grace. Children, to obey your parents in the Lord with joy. When you see it this way and they see it that way and you don't understand why they're saying no or not yet, you need to pray. We need to be a prayerful people. We need to be steadfastly in prayer. You see, when you realize what's being asked of you, it drives you to prayer. You see, I have to pray. You know, I'm, I'm like that widow, right? That woman who has the issue of blood for 12 years. <laughs> and Jesus is going by. And I've got to reach him. I've got to get to him. I'm desperate. You ever seen anybody almost drown? That's the imagery I'm talking about. I have. I, I lifeguarded at Myrtle Beach, and the first day on the job at Myrtle Beach, I thought I was going down there to, you know, live in the sun and have a great time. No, the first day I was there, it was overcast. It was a northeaster. And there were four young people out in the water, and they were going to die that day. And I'm like, what have I signed up for? But they were gasping. That's the image. They're suffocating. I've got to get to him. I've got to touch at least the hem of his garment. I've got to get to him. That's the picture of prayer. It's unrelenting. It, it's white hot in its pursuit of God. Right? It's nothing pedestrian or sophomoric. It's not a, a nice little phone call. No, it's, it's military comms. It's SOCOM calling, going, God, I need you. Get here fast, lest I perish, you see. Beloved, is there a point when you should quit praying? Yep, I'm going to ask you that. Is there a point when you should quit praying for that loved one in your life, that neighbor, that relative who doesn't know Christ? Let me just say emphatically, no, I don't believe so. If that person's breathing, you can still pray, right? You can still pray for that person. Let me tell you about George Mueller. 1844, George Mueller committed to praying for five individuals daily to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Eighteen months, the first man was converted. After five years, the second man was converted. Six more years of praying for the third man, and he was converted. And just before Mueller died in 1897, 53 years after he had started to pray, the fourth man was converted, and the fifth man was converted shortly after Mueller's death. Keep knocking, keep seeking. Keep asking. Be persistent. 
right? You're like the guy who goes to sleep, right? Middle of the night, his friend knocks on the door. Oh, my buddy just showed up. At my house. I have no bread, nothing to give him. But I'm going to go to my neighbor, and I'm knocking on the door. And the neighbor finally gets out of bed. Brother, what do you need? And he gives him bread so he can have something to give to his friend. Beloved, these are the illustrative, intense metaphors and pictures of prayer. It's intense. It's really intense. I just often marvel at how pedestrian and how empty my prayers are. And I can't help but think perhaps yours are as well. We're not like Jacob. We're going we're to take hold of him, and we're not going to let him go until he blesses us. Well, how are we to pray? We're to be watchful in it, right? Being alert. That is awake, right? Watching for the bridegroom to return, Matthew 25, 13. Watch, therefore, for you will know neither the day nor the hour. Will the Son of Man find faith on earth when he returns? And where will that be seen? It'll be seen in a people who pray. Not talk about prayer. Not hear nice sermons about prayer. But, but people who really seek the face of the living God. Who have a prayerful posture. Thomas Watson said if he had one word for the Christian church, it would be this word. Watch. The great Puritan. Watch. Watch, be alert, pray, right? Jesus in the garden uses this same metaphor. Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? The internet calls you the next ding on the phone, right? The next Netflix episode, whatever it is. Be still and know that I am God, says the Lord. Seek my face that your soul may live. But not only watchful, but with thanksgiving. Notice he says, you to do it strenuously, perseveringly, with alertness, but also with thanksgiving. You see, gratitude is what keeps us from being too myopic in our prayer life. To be consumed with our own pressing wants and desires, when the circumstances around you seem suffocating, begin to give thanks. Begin to give a sacrifice of praise. Now, that sounds counterintuitive. It's going to sound counterintuitive to your own psychology, right? But begin to thank him for giving you ears, that the God who gave ears, he surely hears. Oh, Lord, you hear my cry. How many times does the psalmist say, thank God that he hears your prayer? That he's present with you. He's there for you. Thank him for the opportunity to trust him. Right? How are you going to grow in faith? How are you going to trust him and grow and, and find out how good he really is if you're never put in the, the tight spot where you have to trust him and not lean on the arm of flesh or in horses or chariots or your bank account or your, your talents that he gave you. You see, that's what's so deceptive for us, I think, as a church, because you're so talented in this place that we, we, we lapse back into trusting talents and intellectual ability. 
Oh, beloved, it's the weak, it's the poor, it's the poverty, it's the, it's the sick, it's the dead who, who please God by their faith because of their, their dependence upon him. Right? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. In verses 3 to 4, Paul goes on from the general call to pray specifically for him and the success of the word. Now remember, where's Paul? Is he at the Hyatt Regency? That's right, he's at Sandals, Bermuda, just off the coast of South Carolina, about 430 miles, beautiful place, been there once. You know where he is? He's in chains. But notice what he doesn't pray for. Make life easier for me, God. These chains, you know, they're, 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 they're chafing my arms. I, I need some lotion. I don't have any, you know. No. He's consumed with God. He's a suffocating man who needs oxygen. And Jesus is the oxygen. And he's saying, Jesus, that your word might advance. That you might receive the reward of your sufferings. That all the Father gave you before time began would come. That I might declare the mystery, that mystery that was hidden in the old covenant under types and shadows. The Gentiles who were without God and without hope, but now that the seed of Abraham's come, it might be open for them that all might know the hope of glory, which is Christ in you. That the Gentiles might know that I'm, I'm obsessed with the mission of God. That's what I want you to pray for, Colossae. Verses 3 to 4, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word. That's what he wants. He wants the doors to be open, the windows to be open in providence. To declare the mystery of Christ on which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. You see, Paul is consumed with gospel expansion. He wants doors opened. Paul asked the church to pray that doors would be open and that he would make the gospel clear, right? That there wouldn't be an impediment, nothing to impede the gospel, that I might speak it clearly, right? Not, not mumbling, not with big sophistic words, but clearly and pointedly challenging the conscience. And saints, isn't it really amazing to you when you stop and you think about how many times the Apostle Paul requests prayer? Ephesians 6, notice what he's asked the church there. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all power and supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Church, pray. If you want to see the preaching improved in this church, in this pulpit, you need to do what? You need to pray. Pray. You're the benefactor when you pray that I would be clear, courageous, bold, Christ-centered, compassionate, full of conviction that you, beloved of Jesus Christ, would be the benefactors because God would come and deal with you it wouldn't be theoretical, be real. You wouldn't be just deist, right? That's what we default to, deistic Christians, right? Christians who don't pray are just deist. It's just God somewhere in the 
other, and he's wound it up, and he's just letting it run. He's not involved. But that's not the picture in the Word of God. The, the picture in the Word of God is not one hair of your head will fall without him taking notice. Not a, not a sparrow in the tree will fall. In Amos chapter 4, he goes so far to say, do you know why it rains in one field and across the street and it doesn't rain in that field? Because I'm the Lord. He's in the details. It's hard to see it. And you can't see it with the eyes of flesh. Only the eyes of faith can see this. This is why you need to grow in faith. Seek the Father in faith and ask him. You see, only God can give life from the dead. So church, continue in persevering prayer. Be alert. Be watchful. Flesh is willing. I mean, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray also for me in the ministry of the word. The doors will be open for the gospel advancement. Pray as well for your Sunday school teachers that they might make it clear. Pray for the ladies who serve so faithfully our children upstairs. Right? It's not just a transmission of information. This is not MIT, right? This is not Harvard. This is not the, the, any academic thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to convey to them Jesus Christ, a person. Not an idea, not a concept, but a person and all that he accomplished. Well, saints, we've talked to Christ about people And when we've done that, then we're ready to talk to people about Christ. That leads us to our second point, winsome witness. Winsome witness, verses 5 to 6. Notice how Paul moves effortlessly. Now notice that, effortlessly, silky-like, from persevering prayer to the exhortation to walk, right? To call the entire church to live and to speak in a way that the unbelieving world might take notice. And again, it's in the plural, He's not writing just to the the session. This is what he says, verse 5, Y'all walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Make the best use of the time. Now this metaphor, walk, is one of Paul's favorites for describing the Christian life. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul had prayed they would be filled with all knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom so that they may walk that is, conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In chapter 2, 6, he exhorted them, As you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. Now he's calling the church, not only walk in him in the confines of 3,000 Grove, but walk in the Lord Jesus Christ when you go out into the workplace, when you go out into the marketplace, when you go outside the walls of this building into the world. Walk in a way that's becoming of your profession of faith. You see, beloved, the Holy Spirit desires that believers conduct their lives with practical wisdom before an unbelieving world. Live in such a way that your life is attractive to a hopeless and dark world. Live in such a way that you adorn the gospel, right? Paul says, by making the best use of time, making use of the opportunities that are afforded you, right? When God opens that door that you've been praying about, because that's what you've been doing, because you've done exactly what verses 2 to 4 have said, right? You're praying that the word might be proclaimed clearly, the mystery of Christ, and that doors would be open for its advancement. 
So when you begin to pray that, because that's what you're going to do, because that's what you've been exhorted to do in the Word, when that door opens up for you to share the gospel, you know what you need to do? You need to walk through it. You need to walk through that door in obedience to Jesus Christ. You need to grab up the opportunity. That's what the word in the Greek, that's the picture, to grab it up. It's like, like a businessman, right? A, a, a stockbroker who's got a, a great inside, well, maybe not an inside, let's not say that. We don't want something nefarious and wrong and evil and wicked, but he's got some insight on a great stock, and he knows he's got a strike before 4 p.m. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get on it. I've got a strike while the striking's good. That's exactly what Paul is saying. When God opens up those opportunities, be opportunistic because you're prayerfully thinking about how the Word of God can be advanced. And not only are you called to walk in wisdom, seizing the opportunities to share Christ, the Holy Spirit reminds us in verse 6 that our speech is to be gracious. Do we need to hear that today? Right? We're all about the truth, right? How can we speak about the gospel of good news of grace and not at the same time adorn ourselves with grace? And yet we do so. Paul says we're to be gracious, seasoned with salt, and sensitive. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Not only in how you walk in wisdom, let your speech also be gracious. Always seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see, if you're going to be conversant with your neighbor about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must be bathed in grace, not condescending. Can't you see this? Right? Condemning, right? You're sitting in judgment. It's a Pharisee. You're not a Pharisee going out and sharing Christ. Remember, Christian, you're a sinner saved by grace. What do you have you did not receive? Paul says, be seasoned with salt. Salt had two uses in the ancient world, preservative and also to spice it up, right? To serve as a spice, to make something more tasteful, not bland. One commentator said this, a discussion seasoned with salt became a way of referring to an interesting and an enjoyable conversation. Don't be boring when you're sharing Christ. Don't be dull, Have a little bite to your word, right? You're kind, you're gracious, but you're dealing with an eternal soul, an image bearer that's going to one or two places, heaven or hell. Everything's on the line. You want to leave that person thinking about the conversation you've had with them. I think it's Del Tackett who says, uh, talks about putting a little, little rock in their shoe. Right? You ever had a spur or rock in your shoe? Right? It's very uncomfortable. You walk along, you can't think about anything else. Well, that's what Paul is talking about here. Your, your speech is seasoned with salt. You're gracious and you're kind. You're forthright and you're truthful. And you're not condescending and you're not condemning. You're, you're full of grace. But you're giving them something to sink their teeth in because you've called them to the God they know but suppress the truth and unrighteousness to repent that their soul may live. And if they're self-righteous, you know what you do? You take them to the law of God. Romans 3.20. By the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. You see, you want to teach that self-righteous elder brother that he's a sinner? 
who won't come into the father's house even though the father is saying, son, all that I have is yours. Come on home. The prodigal has come. Why don't you come? Take him to the law of God. Begin to work with them and to work in their heart with the law of God. Right? Challenge them where their idols lie. And if they're broken over their sin, they're, they're the broken, bruised reed, the smoldering wick, you know what you want to do? You want to take them to the gospel. You want to take them to the cross. You want to talk to them about redeeming love. You want to talk to them about real blood, real nails. In the days of Pilate, the governor, right? You want to talk to them about the reality of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at the cross. That he who knew no sin became sin. That even you, sinner, no matter how vile, no matter how wicked, right? There's blood enough for you that can wash your sin. Well, you don't know. I've been so involved with the LGBT community. You don't, you don't know. How could God love me? Oh, yes, God can love you. Oh, but you don't know. I, I've preached so many sermons about, about Jesus, but how could God care for me? Oh, yeah, he can save preachers too. He can save deacons. He can save all who come. All who come. Come as you are without one plea. Right? Come to the one whose blood was shed for thee. Come to Jesus Christ. He'll save you. No matter how vile. Let me conclude with this. There's a story told of a Welshman by the name of William Thomas, last century, was converted under the ministry of the doctor, Dr. D. Martin Lord Jones. I would have loved to have heard the doctor. I've heard him on tape, but I would love to have been in a service where he was opening the Word of God. But Mr. Thomas, before he was converted to Christ, was known as the town drunk. Mr. Thomas was so nasty and, and so vile in his life and with his tongue that no one would even drink with him. He was the town drunk. He would always drink alone. Even the people in the local pub refused to fellowship with Mr. Thomas. One day, while Mr. Thomas was drinking his life away, and that's what drunks do, right? Trying to satisfy an idol, to find satisfaction. He overheard two fellows in the town talking about this new preacher who'd arrived there in South Wales. A preacher who had the audacity to say that with Jesus Christ, there's no hopeless cases, there's no sin that Jesus of Nazareth can't save. Bro, there's no sinner too great. No self-righteous preacher he can't save. No one and no there were no helpless causes in Christ. Mr. Thomas's curiosity was awakened. Next Sunday evening, he made his way toward the chapel because he Lloyd Jones on Sunday evening would preach evangelistic sermons from the Old Testament. That was his method. He, in the New Testament in the morning and the Old Testament in the evening, and they would all be evangelistically oriented. Maybe we need to do that. 
But upon arriving at the chapel that evening, Mr. Thomas lost his nerve and returned home. The next Sunday night, he went back. Upon arriving and hearing the singing, he knew he had arrived too late. Maybe Jesus can't save a a late sinner. So he went back home. The third Sunday evening, he continued to come because you see the hound of heaven, once he's on you, he doesn't let you go. (laughs) Mr. Thomas made his way to the chapel, arriving before the chapel service began, and he was nervously dithering around the entrance, wondering what to do, hesitating to go in. You see, that's what happens. I'm too big of a sinner. God can't save me. I'll go back and have my, uh, my bourbon, my whiskey at the pub. One of the men there, one of the greeters, Rick, you'll like that, one of the greeters, right? We have greeters now. And he asked him, he said, are you coming in, Bill? Are you going to come into the church or are you going to stand outside? Come in and sit with me. You see, that's all that Mr. Thomas needed to hear. He went in and his life was changed. A 70-year-old man who was the town drunk there in South Wales was resurrected from the dead that night. He believed on Jesus Christ. He believed John 6.37, all who come to me I will no wise cast out. I, I won't cast you out. He believed, Matthew 11.28, come unto me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. He believed Isaiah 55, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat that your soul may live. Why do you spend your money on that which does not satisfy, that which does not give you anything but demands everything? Come to me that your soul may live. He believed Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. You see, he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ saved him that day. He was a new creation that day. All because a greeter said, Bill, are you going to sit there or are you going to come in? Opportunistic. We need to strike. When that door We've been praying for to be open is opened. You need to step in it, step through it, and be the man, woman of God that He's called you to be in Jesus Christ. There's no God like our God. Isn't it a great honor to sit under His Word, to worship Him, to be in the communion of the saints? No sweeter place than to be at the feet of Jesus. And have him ministering to us. Blessed be his name. Now go after it. Persevering prayer. And winsome witness. In Jesus name. Let's pray. Our Father we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. It's better than life. Truly it is. That's not just rhetorical flair. You are better than life. We love you Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray now in your holy name. Amen.